0: Hello everyone. How's your festival been? So good. Yes. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us for this session. My name is Claire Press. I'm here because I've just written a new book about activism and it's called Rise and Resist, How to Change the World, which is something we need to do. In Australia right now, we're seeing a growth of grassroots activism, and particularly around climate, as communities come together to advocate for nature and to speak up about what's going on in our country, um, from stop Adani to lock the gate to the fight for the bite. People are getting rightly angry as governments put short-term profits ahead of long-term environmental concerns. Who, who saw John Butler on Saturday night? Yes. <laughs> It was so good to see him use his platform to speak out for the Great Australian Bite Alliance. Um, As it says in the show notes to this thing, this is a David and Goliath battle. On the one side, we've got this growing movement of concerned citizens, NGOs, businesses, and people like you in this room who really care what's happening with our environment. And on the other side, you've got a giant Norwegian oil company. On the other side of the world, It operates in 36 countries, and in 2017, it reported a revenue of just a bit over 61 billion US dollars. We're going to hear today from three people who oppose the industrialization of what Bob Brown calls one of the last pristine ocean wildernesses. Please give a very warm welcome to Peter Owen, Jody Rummer, and Banner Laurie. I want to start just by asking you each to introduce yourselves and tell us why is this fight so important to you, starting with you, Peter.
1: Okay, yeah, my name's Peter Owen. I'm the director of the Wilderness Society here in South Australia. Um, for the last 10 or 15 years, we've been very focused on trying to protect the magnificent marine wilderness that is the Great Australian Bight. Both both state and federal marine parks uh, cover this cover this area and right towards the end of, I guess, getting a lot of those parks in place, in came the oil industry. So that, in some ways, is a tragic story because we've got this magnificent Great Australian Bite, largely, well, supposedly protected by state and federal marine parks, yet over the top comes these oil leases. So I guess that's one of the reasons I'm here, not to mention that the expansion of the fossil fuel industry simply cannot be allowed to happen if we're going to have any chance of a livable climate. So.
2: Thank you, Peter. Jodie? Hi, my name is Jody. Thank you all for coming. Um, I am an associate professor at James Cook University, um, all the way over in Townsville. And I'm with the Australian Research Council Center of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies. So I've been spending my career so far researching the effects of climate change and other human-caused stressors on not only coral reef fishes, but fishes and sharks and rays worldwide. And so this is a really appropriate subject for me as well, trying to understand what this might do to critical marine ecosystems, like the Great Australian Bight. Um, The reason that this is so important to me is because I think that we have um, a mission to work to preserve and conserve the natural resources, the natural ecosystems, that not only we are proud of here in Australia, but on a global scale. Um, The oceans are the life of the planet.
0: Thank
3: you. Let's pass the mic to go I say we know. We know in my language means hello, welcome, and greetings. I'd like to acknowledge the uh, Guna nation's people, uh, the past and the present, and uh, the ancestors for this beautiful country. It's um, as, as an original protocol and uh, tradition that I, I grew up with that uh, I must respect those who came before me and kept this place beautiful. Uh, I got drowned at the age of uh, eight years of age and uh, because I, I, I didn't know how to swim and uh, I have a lot of respect for the, th- for the sea and I nearly got again once, so uh, I thought I'd swim like a whale and when they did pull me out of the water. My stomach was like I had three basketballs in it and one day pressed on my stomach, they said, gee, you sounded just like a whale spout. So I, I really love the ocean and I treat the ocean like my family and my people, we, we treat the ocean like our family. And uh, my grandfathers have looked after that country, the Great Australian Bite, for a long time, very, very long time, I'm talking 60,000 years, and I became walking in the footsteps of my grandfather, who was a whale song man chief. And now I have that responsibility and that story to, other people, to teach other people how to connect to the earth and how to connect to the sea and how to connect to the whales. And uh, most of all, we must really respect the whales because they're very important to us. As you know, the Great Australian Bite holds a lot of, lot of sea creatures here. Not only whales, but there's penguins, there's seals, there's sea horses, um, there's dolphins. It's, it's a beautiful place, and I've always loved it, and I, I really love the ocean, and love the great bite, and, and if you see one day and understand that the migration of the whale that comes from, uh, from the bottom of the earth, which is Antarctica, and it, they go with the tide, and they go with the, with the current, just like eagles when they fly, they fly with the wind to have their rest and their glide, or well, whales do that because they've got the great big wings, so, and uh, we treat the whales, with, like I said, like our family, so... Uh, we always want to share with people and teach people about that beautiful country, like I said. Remember, that's the only place we've got left there, and it's the last place that we have here, and um, we must keep what we have. Thank you.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Peter, do you want to begin with a bit of an overview? I'm, so, I'm sure that many of you are really across this because it's on your back doorstep, but for those perhaps who aren't up to speed on who is proposing this drilling, where are we at with it and what are the latest developments? Do you want to give us a bit of a quick history lesson?
1: Okay, quick. Um, well, about 10 years ago, the then-Rudd government started releasing oil acreage in the Bight. Uh, the current coalition's obviously continued that process. Uh, We had BP, the first proponent, Um, they responsibly withdrew their drilling plans. Then we had Chevron, they also responsibly withdrew their drilling plans. But now we have a company which was called Statoil up until their last AGM in Norway last year where they changed their name to Equinor because apparently they're moving away from oil. Work that one out. So we now have a company called Statoil which is two-thirds Norwegian government owned. This largely funds the Norwegian Sovereign wealth Fund. Uh, Pushing for drilling approval right in the middle of the Great Australian Bight Marine Reserve. Um, Of all the places on this planet, pushing for drilling approval in the middle of one of the most significant whale nurseries that we know of is obscene, um, as is, obviously, what this represents, which is the expansion of the fossil fuel industry on a massive scale at high risk to the southern Australian coastline. So that, I guess, is a snapshot.
0: But what's exactly at stake here? Why is it so dangerous to be drilling in these waters?
1: Well, the Bight's extremely rough, it's extremely remote, and it's very deep. Um, unlike, say, the Gulf of Mexico, that was, that's quite, quite deep, but it's, it's very smooth. It's a mill pond in comparison to what's in the bite. The Gulf of Mexico is also a heavily industrialised part of the world with all the infrastructure you can possibly imagine to have shut that blowout that we saw down there ten years or so ago, and it still took three months and devastated the area. The issue is what on earth are they going to do if something goes wrong in the Great Australian Bight? There is nothing out here. Nothing. No way of addressing a major blowout. We've seen the oil spill modelling. The Wilderness Society commissioned oil spill modelling a few years ago when we couldn't get it released by BP when they were pushing for approval. Um, that showed the magnitude of what's at stake. Uh, you know, Much of the southern Australian coastline is potentially at risk from oil. Oil all over the beaches right here. Our home, smothered in oil, um, we've, we've since seen BP release their own modelling, which showed that the Wilderness Society's modelling was relatively conservative. Uh, we, we deliberately uh, made sure it was very cautious, because at the time we were concerned we'd obviously get called fear mongers and all sorts, and that, that happened. This was one of the first times an environment group's actually commissioned their own oil spill modelling, uh, in the absence of the oil industry making it public. But anyway, finally, just before BP pulled out, they released their oil spill modelling, and as I said, that showed that the Wilderness Societies was quite conservative, but clearly on the mark, that again showed much of southern Australia was at risk from an oil spill. And now, just a few weeks ago, we've had Equinor release their drilling uh, plan for public comment. That closes March the 20th, mind you, if you're concerned about what's being proposed here. You've got until March the 20th to get comments in on that. But their oil spill modelling as well shows Southern Australia in major trouble if there's a blowout here. So this is very high risk, no matter how you look at it. If you assess risk, you look at even if the chance of a blowout is fairly low, if the consequence is catastrophic, Mm. the risk is high. Mm. We should not be taking this type of risk.
0: Okay, Jody, from a scientist's perspective, can you share with us what lives in these waters? What's the marine life that needs protecting in these waters? Can you give us a picture of this?
2: Um, Well, as as we have heard, you know, this is some of the most biodiverse area of Australia, and and on a global scale as well. Um, 37 species of whales and dolphins. Uh, It's a critical migration and nursery area for several whale species. Um, The southern right whale that's also endangered, um, the Australian um, sea lion as well, not to mention southern bluefin tuna, lots and lots of species. So it's a really rich and biodiverse area for marine life that is, is at danger if um, if we put this risk out there. I'm going to come back to you and I want to dig a bit deeper into what will happen
0: even if there isn't a catastrophic spill. But can you pass the mic to Bunner and can we, can we just ask you to share a little bit about... I just would like you to share a little bit about what this region means to you and to the mourning people.
3: Well, the great Australian right is very important to us. And uh, my heart is really close to that as we have, uh, like I said, our people have, we have um, burial sites all along the coast, 600 kilometers of, of the whale story all along that line. And not only that, but also whale burial sites as well where the whales have, when they've traveled and when they've died at old age, you know our people perform ceremonies, so we have a great connection to them. Like I said, like a family, and it means it's very special to me. Like you know, I I now walk in the footsteps of my grandfather, taking his responsibility and duty, and uh, that place is very special to me and my family and, and the mourning people. In our language, mourning means listen, learn, understand, observe, prophecy. That one word goes on and on and on and on. So we listen to our elders, we, you know, and it's very important to listen to, to pass down stories, <clears throat> to teach the children, and also look after the whales and look after the animals that live beside us, behind us, around us, and always cared for them. And uh, we showed special love and care for elders. We showed special love and care, just like we, we show special care to our elders, we show special care to the whales and the animals that come there. We make sure that we clean out all the water, water holes along there so it's a very important place to, to us mourning it. And like I said, the ocean, you know, I don't know if I say something to you, you might think that it's a bit weird, but we do. We ask for things. If we take things from the ocean, we ask because it's a living ocean. It breathes, you know. And, and <clears throat> if, if the ocean, if we bleed, you know, we can fix it. But if, if we bleed, you, you, you have an operation, you bleed in hospital, right? You lose a lot of blood. What do you do? The doctors give you a transfusion, right? So if you drill a big hole in the ocean, say five, six kilometers down, three kilometers to the rock, you know, where are you gonna get, get that transfusion from to fill it up? When you can fit New Zealand in there five times, where are you gonna get the transfusion? Nothing but a big hole in the ground. So, you know, it's a sacred place, that ocean, and we love that place. And uh, like I said, um, let's don't make Aquinas' problem our problem. At the moment because we haven't got a problem, okay? And it's a special place for us, and we love it.):
1: Thank
0: you. It's really evocative, isn't it, to think of life blood, life force and to actually make that kind of connection with the idea of oil being this kind of life force and blood beneath the ocean. Peter, what happens I mean, actually I just want to before we started coming on stage here, you were saying to me that not only are we looking at risks of spills, but what about capping off old wells and basically we're letting this stuff bubble up and then there's potentially rusty old caps on some of this stuff under the water. What are some of these risks? Because formerly, Statoil, Equinor, is saying that they can do this safely. Um, They're saying they're consulting widely. They've drilled in deep waters elsewhere, and they've done so with a good safety record.
1: All of the oil industries, obviously, uh, the oil companies claim that. BP were claiming that before the Deepwater Horizon disaster in 2010. Um, We know from analysis that's happened in the last couple of years that in the Asia-Pacific area, Companies have been sinking wells and they, they, they sink a well, they work out what oil's down there and generally they then cap it off and they, it goes on their share price and then they come back to it at a later date if they need it. That's been happening all over this area for a long time. Of, of the oil that's already shared up in this, or in this region, 50% of it can't be burnt if we're gonna have any chance of staying below a two degree global warming limit. So the obvious question is what on earth are we doing looking for more in, in a very high-risk proposition. And as Claire was touching on there, if we've got all these, all these wells out there in the ocean that are capped off, you know, who's looking after these things? You know, who's monitoring all these things? Um, so, the, yeah, the risk with this industry is, is serious.
0: What about the fact that Equinor is saying we... I mean, I'll read out what they've said... They've said, for over 40 years, we've drilled safely on the Norwegian continental shelf and around the world in water depths and weather conditions similar to those in the Great Australian Bight. you buying that?
1: They'll all say that, won't they? Like I said, BP was saying that until the Gulf of Mexico mm. got literally wiped off the planet. Um, and as we are saying, the, the Great Australian Bight is a place where... It's probably almost going to be impossible to deal with a disaster here.
0: We don't have the it's, infrastructure. We don't have no, the boats.
1: We don't have the it. The water was something is like, too rough. Yep. There was something like six and a half thousand boats involved in the cleanup in the Gulf of Mexico spill. There's 20 boats, uh, according to the oyster industry, in a, in a Senate inquiry hearing recently. There's 20 boats with the specs that can safely operate in the bite. There, there is nothing here. This is the point.
0: Okay. Jodie, we're talking about a spill. I mean, that's the most horrendous and catastrophic thing that could happen, but we don't know what could happen. Do you want to just briefly tell us what our learnings are um, from Deepwater Horizon? I know you have colleagues who are still looking into the effects of that, you know, how many years, nine years on.
2: Yeah, my team, team, we work really closely with uh, the group that has been doing the research almost 10 years now, uh, following up from the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill. Um, they're, they're called Recover, appropriately so. Um, and what we're finding is that about less, less than 3% of that oil has been cleaned up. You know, so we still have a lot of that oil in the ecosystem wow. down there. So that's a big deal in itself. And some of the concentrations that we're testing in some of the species that we find right here in the Great Australian Bight, and then also I do a lot of work with reef fishes, is these concentrations are like drops in a, an Olympic-sized swimming pool. So it doesn't take a lot of oil to cause some major problems with some of these marine species. And we're talking about cardiac failure, so heart failure, heart deformities, developmental issues. Um, some of the studies we recently published that fish were unable to make proper decisions, so they weren't able to school properly, they weren't able to detect a predator. Under these very small oil concentrations
0: you're also concerned that, as I mentioned, we're looking at worst case scenario, but what about just the effects of drilling were it to be uh, you know spill free
2: yeah, I think that's that's what we have in our mind. We see these horrible images of these massive oil spills, and I mean you know many many years ago the Exxon Valdez oil spill in Alaska and that's of what inspired me to get into my field of research actually Um, because I thought I could make a difference but it doesn't have to be that catastrophic because just the increase in boat traffic um, the seismic testing that has to be done, so the sound and noise pollution, the pile driving, um, the increase in sediment and turbidity that happens to the water. So these are best case scenarios just to get that operation going. And my lab has been doing all kinds of studies that show you know, even small amounts of noise, even small amounts of sediment are really impacting marine ecosystems in a dramatic way. It's
0: terrifying being up here, because I can see the clock, and I could be up here for ages, but we don't have enough time. <laughs> Bunna, let's talk about the whales. Um, I would urge you all to watch a film that you can see on the Sea Shepherd website. Um, it's SeaShepherd.org.au, and that's Jidara, um, and you can see Bunna in that film. Watching you there on the coast and having that encounter with the white whale, can you tell us that story and how you feel?
3: Well. It was a couple of years ago, we was at Head of the Bight after we'd done the Jittera campaign trip, and it really touched my heart to be on the boat and see the sea shepherd people. It was really beautiful that we were out there sharing and, you know, seeing all these beautiful creatures, you know, sea lions, and, and we had a few whales following us and coming under the boat, and just amazing. But when we got to Head of the Bight, it was like, wow. First time in history, there were seven white baby jitter of calves, white whales, in one go. It was never seen before. And that's because we were out there caring for them, and it's like a gift, it's like a comeback of a present to say, now our brother's starting to care for us. You know, it's very important. We call the, the white whale jitter in our language. I don't know if you get the There's another white whale humpback whale out there. It's called migaloo. That travels up the coast. He follows that migration too from the Antarctic, but he travels down one side. But Judah came from the bottom end and came right up to the Great Australian Bight. So his wives were the seven sisters. So it might sound a bit strange, you're talking about the seven sisters. You might think them stars, but they were to his eyes, they were beautiful seven. Really good-looking women. And he wanted all of them for his wife, so. And a lot of the a lot of the aboriginal stories that were told it it can make you laugh it's funny, but they can turn stories into uh you know enough to um for children to to be able to uh mm. you know to know and uh, because in some places when when they say they're mate we're trying to keep that away from the children so it's really hard to understand that but we we believe that you know and they had a great fight at the at the bite that time, and Jitter was a great big white whale, and as you know in the stories that he was once a man, a human. And we call, when he, we call the magic whale Marvon Galkaberti. So he, he can be a white whale. He can be a black whale. He can be a humpback whale. He can be a blue whale. He can be a sperm whale. He can be a killer whale. He can also be a serpent, a rainbow serpent. So this is why we call that whale also the Marvon Galkaberti, the magic whale. So, and this is how he sprayed them and, uh, and, uh, the Seven Sisters didn't like him at first because, you know, he was, he was in the area and uh, they had a big argument and he got hit across the head with a with nulla nulla and uh, made his head bleed. He became angry in the sea and tossed about and uh, he started to create the longest cliff line in the world, you know, like a bricklayer, like putting brick together with mortar and cement, but he was doing it in seconds. So this was a plan of the creation of the great creator's work. Um, but yes, so, Seven sisters became pregnant, and in our belief that there were whales and us burning people. So we became the children, and all the sparks that flew out of him, all the fire came out of his head, went to the land, his blood went to the land and became berries, wildflowers, vegetables. Yellow became red ochre, yellow ochre, red ochre, white ochre. This thing I'm wearing it became white ochre and also flint, but we call that Jaljana language. But uh, it was an amazing story about a whale creating a lot of things. But when the sparks landed, he was pushed in, in shallow water by two penguins, Julia, and one dolphin, uh, one dolphin we call him. They're in the Dreamtime stories. They pushed him in. Oh, but no. one of the sparks landed on the, one of the birds was a... He was a, it was a... What's that one called? The one with the red on? With the red stripes Then I don't
0: know about... I, I just wanted to ask you, yeah. has, has Equinor consulted you?
3: No, no, they did not. And um, we're Have all. Have they
0: hurt. spoken to the traditional owners? All, all my elders,
3: and myself, are really hurt about because we are not a yes man. and You know that. We'll tell them to go back where they come from. And, and we said, you're not welcome, you know. And we're all hurt by it because they never come to us because they know we're, we're no person. We'll say no because. We are the keepers of that country, we are the keepers of the world, we're the custodians. And like I said, it's, it's beautiful and pristine right now, and it's, it's beautiful. We want to keep it like that way. But getting back to that, quickly back to that emperor. That's why that emperor penguin got red and white because the sparks flew on there and feathers and left the red and yellow mark. I just want to let you know about that story. And then the other one was a little blue penguin called Julia that still lives there today, but that pangun comes back in again. But um, it's a long story and time's running out.
0: Time's running out, but I but do remember, have a really quick one for you, But I want to say... That's the only place
3: we've got left. We, we must keep it and save it.
0: Just really quickly, though, when we were talking about this session before and I said, did they ask you? And he said, no. He said, but they're nowhere to find me because you went to Oslo, you went to Norway. Yes.
3: I was up there fighting with the, with the youth, and they, t- they put a lawsuit against the government. Same thing, you know, and uh, because they're worried about the future, you know, young children, and uh, you know, you, your ch- you and your children should be worried too about your future coming, you know, up ahead. And my children, uh, you yep. know, is is there a future? Is there a beautiful ocean they can enjoy like our grandfathers and our people have enjoyed, and like we've enjoyed? Yeah, they want to enjoy to see dolphins and whales out there. Because out there is a part of, the, of all that, all that line, um, you know, where the whales swim, and is right in the middle with that.
0: I shouldn't give me the They're going mic to build this big,
3: big, <laughs> horrible, horrible, ugly, off, yeah. <laughs> big whale um, platform, whatever it is.
0: Thank you. <laughs> We're talking about what might happen if, if a catastrophe happens and there's an oil spill in the bike. We're talking about how marine life are going to be impacted, even if nothing like that happens. I think that we can feel palpable frustration here. Peter, what can be done? Let's talk about the campaign to try to make this turn around.
1: Well, this community in the tent, and of course, more broadly than that now, right across Australia and in fact the world, the Great Australian Bight Alliance is a, big, is a big thing now. But but we've stared down BP and we've stared down Chevron, so give yourselves a clap for that. We've we've stared down two companies already. And and now the opposition to what Ecuador are proposing is far greater than what it was. We've now got something like 15 councils across southern Australia that have passed resolutions raising serious concern, representing the best part of probably 750,000-plus people. Now, that's unheard of. So I guess that the level of opposition to what's being proposed here across the southern Australian community and beyond is huge. We've got to keep the pressure on. Obviously, we've got a a big focus now happening in Norway, in the Norwegian media. Um, As we said, Equinor is two-thirds owned by the Norwegian government, the Norwegian people. I mean, surely, surely they must now be starting to realise this is a really important marine ecosystem. Mm. Uh, The risks here are extremely high, the community here does not support this and also this is a time when we cannot afford to be expanding the fossil fuel industry. That is what this represents. This represents a high risk, a high risk expansion of the fossil fuel industry at a point where we've got to be transitioning out of the existing industry, not expanding. So. We've got no option, really. Along with the Adani campaign, the bike campaign, these are the big expansions to the fossil fuel industry on our watch in Australia right now. It is our responsibility to the rest of the planet to stop them, and we will.
0: I want to give you guys a chance to question the panel, but I just want to just bring Jody back into this for a moment and say, it's all good to be talking in this convivial atmosphere where I feel like lots of us feel the same, but how do we build a broad alliance and make sure that we're not just speaking to the converted and people who are already on this? Um, from a science perspective, Jody, do you want to speak quite, quite quickly <laughs> about um, how you communicate these issues and make them above politics and perhaps touch on ocean acidification? I know it's a big topic.
2: Uh, no, that's right, I'm I'm a scientist, I'm not an activist, but I can say that I'm an advocate for nature and I'm an advocate for conservation. Um, it's my responsibility to provide an evidence base so that proper decisions can be made. Um, so if with my team and with my colleagues we can do the best science we can and then get it out to people that are actually making the decisions, which is all of you, Um, anyone who's voting, um, you know, and and who pays for the science. The taxpayers pay for the science. So you have every right to know exactly what we're doing and what we're finding and why it's important. So I think that situations like this where we can get the science out in a really friendly, awesome way, get a lot of inspiration, get a lot of motivation and momentum, that's really the best way. Um, I know that I can be a role model for that in what I'm fighting for. and developing that evidence base so that these decisions can be made responsibly.
0: Thank you. I think it's really important. Great work. I want to let everyone join this conversation. I've got 15 minutes. Raise your hand if you've got a question for the panel. I think we, have we got a roving mic um, here in the yellow, three rows back? Thank you.
4: Thank you. Uh, hello. Thank you, everybody. Um, I want to know what the South Australian Government's position is in relation to their role in the EPBA, specifically in relation to the um, sanctuary, which has has been realised since that act was made. And in it, it says that uh, you can't kill, uh, interfere with or injure whales in any way. Plus, that act states that the states and the federal government and the territories should... uh, It it wants to facilitate the cooperation between them. So what is the New South Wales... uh, Sorry, the South Australian government doing in relation to the federal um, pressure to approve these things through Nopsema?
0: Yeah, Okay, Peter.
1: Well... The current South Australian government, as with the previous one, um, are essentially saying that they have faith in the regulator to make the correct decision. Um, You raised some really important points there because the regulator, uh, NOPSEMA, Australia's offshore oil and gas regulator, which is now at arm's length from an elected minister or an elected official, which obviously has some some concerns attached to it, um, they're essentially assessing risk. they aren't able to assess a lot of what used to be under the EPBC Act, you know, even social licence, for instance, the fact that 15 councils across southern Australia have opposed this. Um, whereas there's some interesting um, amendments currently before the federal parliament uh, from Rebecca Sharkey, Sarah hanson young and Tim Storer, all in, looking at different aspects of the very questions you are raising there um, and ways of, I guess, Trying, trying to refine the approvals process so that it can actually take into account a much broader range of issues. But in some ways, the South Australian government, I mean, there's, it's a federal regulator, it's in federal water, but the South Australian government, as with the previous one, and we were pushing them both very hard, can take a position on this. They, sh- they should stand up and say, look, this is not in the interests of the people that we're elected to govern for. We are representing the people of South Australia, and we're going to oppose this
0: Gentleman
2: there in the blue with his hand up, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you.
3: Thank you everyone. My name's Scott. I'm from Kangaroo Island. Oh. C- contrary to what you may have heard, people of Kangaroo Island are well and truly in this fight. Uh, I, I just wanted to come back to the issue of the Norwegian people and the fact that the Greens minister in Norway has actually come out uh, very strongly. And if I I can take about two seconds, I'd like to just read what he'd said.
0: Today, yeah, the news from today. Yes, please do.
3: He said, just as many Australians are furious at their own government for allowing such a gamble to be played with an irreplaceable part of Australian nature for the profit of a global oil company, many Norwegians are enraged that our government is making this project happen again there is support from else.
0: Yeah. Um, thank you. And I mean, you're on the front line of this. It's an interesting point to raise, and I didn't know if we'd get to it, but I'm glad that you did, because there's this strange kind of contradiction, isn't there, with Norway that we hear all about how green they are and how there's all this kind of push towards sustainable living. And there's certainly interest among Norwegians to living a cre- cleaner, greener, fairer life but then you've got Equinor, which is state-owned or part-state-owned. Who wants to jump in here? I mean, Peter, I think you know the most about this thing that happened today.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've got the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund making very positive statements around divesting from fossil fuels. Like I said at the last AGM in in Norway, they changed their name from Statoil to Equinor. This was when the the mayor of Kangaroo Island, Peter Clements, the then mayor of Kangaroo Island, uh, was was fronting the, the Stato, soon to become Equinor, literally after Peter spoke, uh, board on behalf of all of us and saying the people of South Australia, the people of Southern Australia, do not support this. This is high risk. Uh, we are not willing to entertain what's being proposed here. You may be hearing messages that certain people in our state and federal governments. There's a lot of fossil fuel people inside the Labor Party, inside the Coalition. There's obviously an oil uh, fossil fuel ag- advocacy group here that is obviously pushing this stuff. That's their job. But uh, they need to start listening to the views of all of us, and they need to start actually putting our interests first, because our interests are not being served by the fossil fuel industry continually being expanded.
0: I'm going to give you the mic, Bernard. You've got to be quick. I want you to share with us a little bit more about what reactions you had when you went to Oslo and spoke, spoke with ordinary people about what was going on back home.
3: Well, yeah, I was, I was amazed because um, there were a lot of people, don't, they don't like um, oil or oil companies and they don't like the government what they was doing because the kids were fighting for it and we stood with them and it was amazing. But I met a lot of good people there as well, you know, and, uh, and now... Uh, to find out Statoil is coming here and changing them to Equino to take over the license or the permits of uh, the BP and, uh, you know, Chevron that we um, end up beating, you know, it's just, it's just, it's crazy and uh, it's, it's mad. It's like, why do that? You know, this is, you, you, you just, you just do destruction around the world. And, and in your country, you now you come down here and you want to do it because you're on debt. You're in debt, or borrowing money from every bank, and yeah. the banks are after you to chop your heads off. And you want to come and uh, destroy this beautiful, uh, you know, in the last frontiers on planet Earth. And uh, it's amazing, this place. And uh, like I said, we just got to keep these people out. And, um, you know, there's some good people around planet Earth. And, uh,
1: yeah.
3: you know, like Donald Trump, Trump said, um, I will make America great, but he cannot make it any greater than what Mother Nature has given us.
4: <laughs> Thank you.
0: also speaks to the fact that there is this groundswell of opposition that just because, you know, there are forces in power that are making these decisions. But actually, everywhere you look, ordinary people are saying, not, on, not in my name. Do we, do we have another question? Oh, we've had one from you. Come on. Oh, yes, please. Can we have a mic on this side, please? Thank you. Sorry, I'm making you run. <laughs> Thank you. I'm gonna ask a really simple question. Um, What do we do? So we keep getting told to write letters, we keep getting told to do this, but no one's making that super simple for the people who struggle to like after today, walk away and then what do we do? So you could be really clear around that.
4: That'd Um. be really great.
0: I'm not the expert here but I am the messenger and I would just like to share with you that there are some stalls here with some amazing people from different NGOs that are trying to spread the word about their amazing work they're doing. Go and see the Great Australian Bite Allowance stand. You can look on the website to find a link to make your submission. You have until March the 20th and the website is just www.fightforthebyte.org.au. So start with that, please. Anyone
4: else?
1: (laughs) Yeah, we... There's obviously a federal election in May. Um, There's a few seats that are going to be marginal that both the Coalition and the Labor Party are going to be really keen to win. One of them is Boothby. If you live in Boothby, get in and lobby. Tell all of the representatives, the Labor Party person, the Coalition person and others, that you don't want drilling in the bite. Um, Really push. We need to try and get commitments out of of all of the parties, but certainly the major parties, on this issue. It's critical. We've got an election in two months. One of the real trigger points in South Australia is the seat of Boothby. So if you you are in that seat, um, get in there and make your voice heard.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Um, Yes, please, At the back. Sorry, I'm making you do laps. (laughs) We've got time for two more questions, I think. Thank you.
3: Hi, I just want to say that I'm not a stooge for big oil or anything like that, but I just want to know, yeah. um, would a development like this not reduce our reliance on Saudi Arabia, and as a result, our complicity with their atrocious global human rights record? Just a question. Well,
2: I, th- I think we still have to ah. make a statement that the elephant in the room is fossil fuels, and If Australia needs to be the leader in saying that, no more, then that's what we have to do.
1: Also, you're probably seeing some of the spooking for this happening at the moment in the media, and there's a line around energy security and people claiming that this is all about energy security, Australia doesn't have enough oil, blah, blah, blah. This is not the Australian government sinking these wells on behalf of the Australian people to provide us with cheap oil. This is a private corporation that is going to be, if they can get an approval, sending that oil to wherever in the world they can get the highest money for it. So this has nothing to do with energy security for Australia and as Jody says, all this represents is a further expansion of an industry that is cooking the planet. So
0: When questioned the, you'd know who it was at Equinor when questioned about job creation in South Australia as a result of this potentially happening, he admitted that they had no plans whatsoever to bring the, to, to have the refining done here.
1: Very limited refining capacity anyway. So, yeah.
0: um, guess what? I got the time wrong. <laughs> Francoise just came to tell me that I actually have 15 minutes more than I thought. <laughs> I was so worried about it. Don't trust me with things like that. All right, we have time for more questions. Otherwise, I also have more questions. We've got one here. Um, oh, shall I not make you run? OK, we'll start here. I'll come back to you. Thank you.
4: Considering that BP and Chevron have pulled out of uh, oil production in the Bite, why hasn't the government just cancelled the licence so we're not put under this pressure Thank to have you. Equinor to uh, try and come in and take the oil. That was
0: one of my questions I was going to ask if I didn't think I'd run out of time. (laughs) Why is this still on the table? Um, I'm going to ask all of you that, but I'd be interested to know what you think, Pete.
1: Well, I know many of the people involved in the Great Australian Barter Alliance obviously pushed very hard um, to have those leases not transferred, essentially. Um, Chevron's leases are still out there flapping, even though they've pulled out. Obviously, BP pulled out, they had four leases, and Statoil, then Equinor, took over the exclusive ownership of two of them, and that's, that's the issue that we now face with them pushing for drilling approval. All of, all of these leases should actually be allowed to lapse. The, the oil industry should never, and oil acreage should never have been released in the bite. This was a terrible mistake that happened 10 years ago under the Rudd government, but it's been continued under the coalition, um, and yeah... As you say, it's, it's, it's ridiculous, it's obvious to everyone in this room. Uh, the, the leases need to be allowed to lapse and the oil industry needs to be not given permission to go into this area.
4: Thank you.
0: I've got a question for you, Joji. You have to forgive me for not knowing the time. I wanted to ask you to share with us One of the big things that we don't tend to talk about because it's so complicated, which is the other side of this climate question and the impacts on the ocean, it's not just warming of the atmosphere and um, the warming effects that we feel on land. If we contribute further to climate change, can you talk us through the impacts on the ocean of ocean acidification as a result of climate change, which is directly related (laughs) to us adding to this fossil fuel problem?
2: Yeah, so when we're putting more carbon emissions into the atmosphere, uh, we we know that's warming the planet. Um, Like I mentioned earlier, I do a lot of my work on the Great Barrier Reef. We know what one degree warming has done to the Great Barrier Reef over the past several years. We've lost two thirds of it due to bleaching, which is directly related to warming. But the sort of uh, ugly side of warming is ocean acidification so of those emissions that are going into the atmosphere coming from the burning of fossil fuels the oceans are absorbing about a third of those emissions and what's happening when the oceans absorb about a third of that carbon dioxide from the atmosphere is a a process that we understand really well it decreases the ocean's ph and when it decreases the ocean's ph a few big problems start to happen and I don't know if anyone ever did an experiment in school where they, you know, you lose your tooth when you're young and you put it into a cup of Coca-Cola, or like a, a cup of pop, and it dissolves. Well, that's what happens. So any organism that's trying to make a shell or a skeleton can't do that very well when the ocean is too acidic or has a low pH. So it's a really big problem for any animal that's making a skeleton, so fish that make bones, um, corals that make their structure, um, any um, uh, lobsters, which is a big fishery around here, uh, any clams, any shells. It's a really, really big problem. So it's not just warming. We've got ocean acidification that's happening as well.
0: So, thank you. Would you go as far as then to say that you can link that directly to more extraction so we can actually draw a line between this kind of reckless drilling and then what's going to happen broadly to our climate?
2: Well, I think that's the the big picture here. We're being quite short-sighted and whether the short-sightedness is around job creation or Mm -hmm. money, whatever the case may be, we're saying that fossil fuels are okay doing this and we know they're not on a on a global scale and I think we owe it not just to ourselves but to our children and our grandchildren to not leave this planet in a heaping mess which is what's going to happen if we keep saying okay to fossil fuels um, and it's not just the potential for an oil spill but it's we're, we're further warming the planet and we can't keep under that 1.5 degree celsius limit that that we agreed on at the Paris Agreement, if we keep doing this. And even if we stop right now, it's gonna be really difficult. So we do need to stop right now, and we need to kind of band together and say, no, this is not okay.
0: Thank you. Hey, there's a young boy in the back. Oh, I don't want to uh, um, can we bring a mic all the way over here? Oh, oh you got one. Okay, we'll start with you and then we'll come to you, I promise. I promise. Thanks for your patience. Yes, please. Okay, Uh, are you, as activists and experts, actively engaging with young people? You you did... Um, mentioned that before, but phrasing it as a question, is there any way this group could actively support young people on Friday by attending the rally at Parliament House between 11 and 2? It's not widely known, and I think if we as the older generation who are handing on this mess to the young can support the young on Friday. Could you respond to that, please?
1: Yeah, we, I mean, we should all be promoting what's happening on Friday. It's, yep. I mean, there's a there's an uprising happening. You know, the kids are saying, "Enough! We don't have a future if this continues." You must listen to us. So everyone in the room should be promoting those events and just make them go as viral as we possibly can. I mean, mm-hmm. this is our opportunity.
0: Did we have a question from a climate striker at the back? Where's he gone? Yeah, got- ah, yes. What can young people like me do other than uh, strike our palm? Uh, other than the strike this Friday? Thank you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, what can young people like you do other than join the climate strike revolution, which is wonderful? What else can young people do to really get behind this fight, because they're the ones who are going to inherit the mess that we're making?
2: That is a really, really good question. I think that today you're in the best possible position to make change because young people are really good at social media. Um, They're really good at getting messages out there beyond what I was ever able to do when I was your age. And so you have to spread the word in every possible way that you can. And you also have to talk to your parents and grandparents and anyone in your family that can vote and say, look, I'm going to have to deal with this when I'm older. Can you please help me out? And don't, don't leave this mess for me. Um, because really, it's, it's the voting power that's going to make a difference. And even if you're not old enough to vote yet, you can still talk to people that can.
1: But basically, with an election coming up in May, any political party that doesn't have a, a climate policy that starts with, we will stop the expansion of the fossil fuel industry now, doesn't have a climate policy. It's as simple as that. So we need to encourage everyone to become aware of that real fast and, like, like we are saying, encourage your parents, your grandparents and those that can vote to make sure they're across that and ultimately vote around climate because that's what's going to determine the future for the younger generation, absolutely.
0: We really do have time for two more questions now. Um, could we please have a mic? Oh, we've got one here. I'll come back to you. Yes. I've just I've just got a quick one. Um, I'm sorry if you already covered this, but the Arctic managed to stop them. There was here and, the, uh, here and the Arctic. I just wonder if
4: there's anything we can learn because... I don't know if it's because the majority of the people are near there or there's no-one there. I don't understand how they managed, but, you know, we got targeted. Is there anything that we can learn from that?
0: What
1: can we learn from previous fights? Just keeping the pressure on. Um, honestly, that with BP and Chevron certainly in the Bight, as well as some of those companies in the Arctic, major pressure on the boards of those companies was, was what ultimately got it over the line. Unfortunately, our governments and our government structures in, in Australia are a mess. That, I mean, the fossil fuel industry is, is, is heavily infiltrated through the old parties, and that's a tragedy, but there are ways around that, and one is voting and making sure that these parties realise that that is no longer acceptable, but two, focusing on the, on the boards, company boards, and, and recognising that they, you know, there's a lot of responsible people on those boards, and quite often they don't, they don't hear the right messages, so, yeah, big focus there is important.
0: Um, OK, we've got one more. Thank you. So, is it on? Oh. Um, so it's been proposed that the Great Australian Bight buy- be made a UN-listed heritage site um, by people like our Senator Sarah hanson young and other uh, NGOs and community groups. Um, I just wanted to know, instead of turning it into an oil field, what what's the ideal future for the Bight buy- and places like it and how do we increase the eco-tourism and, and turn them into positive places that we, we can protect? Like, What are you guys see as the ideal future for the bay, instead of what it's being proposed to be turned into. Thank you. Great question. You. Wonderful. Um, I would like to ask Bernard to share about that first.
3: I think uh, one of the things, um, one of the main things that me and my elders were uh, working on is to, to get that nominated as a World Heritage listing and a, a protection zone so that um, the whale's home will always be there. That's their home. And the Nullarbor is our home, the Gulf, the coast as well. So, if we can get that nominated as a World Heritage listing, a protection zone, I think they made a marine marine protection thing some years ago, but but you know, but that seemed to be seemed to have disappeared off the map somewhere, and uh, you know, the government has sort of walked over that. And uh, now we're going to have to stand up, so we're going to need all your people's support here, right here now, because all vote for that World Heritage listing as a protected zone for the, this is one of the biggest nurseries and uh, whale centers on this planet Earth. And uh, like I said, it's one of its kind. You're never going to find a place like the Great Australian Bite again, even if you go to Mars.
0: <laughs> Would you like to weigh in on that one as well, Jody? I mean, I think one of the interesting things about this is that we often talk about how job creation comes potentially from the development or industrialization of our wild places, but what about the vastly larger amount of jobs that come from protecting them? We know that tourism is of huge value in this region and in this country, and in order, I mean, decimating our playgrounds is not a particularly great idea for an economic, thriving economic future how would you like to let's finish on that upbeat note how would you like to see this region protected nurtured and supported so it can thrive for future generations
2: um well i think just getting the word out there about what a special place this is in terms of nature and wildlife and biodiversity uh, coming from the other side of australia i know how to talk about that with the great barrier reef Yeah. Um, You know, we we talk about how you can see it from space, how it's 2,300 kilometers long, the types of species that live there. Well, we need to be doing that about the Great Australian Bight as well, and UNESCO World Heritage listing, uh, you know, things like that that are going to really, really help give visibility to this critical ecosystem. I mean, really, these critical ecosystems are the fuel of Australia, Mm. not oil.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Have
1: you got a last word on that, Peter? Yeah, I mean, the Bight is just a magnificent place. Um, It supports tens of thousands of jobs in the tourism industry and the fishing industry. Um, it's, It's the way of life for so many people across southern Australia. It's our backyard. It's a magnificent wilderness area as well. Let's protect it. We can.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us for this session. And thank you for your patience that I couldn't tell the time. I really just want to reiterate how important it is for us all to come together as a community across Australia and support the Great Australian Buy Alliance. So please do go see them, visit the website. I'm going to sell some books if anyone's interested, outside, Um, but please take what you've heard today and share it in your communities. Tell someone who doesn't know about this. Tell someone who doesn't agree with you and try to share some of the positive stories about how we can come together to make change. Can we have a round of applause for our speakers?